Hello and welcome to Mount Vigil. I'm Anthony. And I'm Blaine. And this is episode number what of our Revelation series? Have our five. Number five. Five of our Revelation series. And it is also, Lord willing, going to be the conclusion of our series on the story of God. We're ending Revelation and ending the picture of reality in the Bible. Unless you include the next episode, which is going to be us recording a voice rendition of the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Complete with period accents for (laughs) any characters that are in a particular location. So we have spent more time on John's apocalypse than we have. We spent less time by far on the whole story of Israel, kind of like the whole Old Testament. I think that was a three-hour episode. Good for us, man. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing nothing major happens in that story. So many of our big chunks were done in three-hour stints. Suddenly we get to Revelation and we just slow down. And why is that? Why have we taken so much time here at this juncture in the story of God series, as we've told it, and on this text? What's going on? You're asking me that question? Yeah. Why? Anthony, why are we spending so much time on Revelation? Because the entirety of the Bible, the the Old Testament and the New Testament, the entirety of it is compressed and mixed up and woven together and reshaped and repurposed and extrapolated in this text. So this is the capstone of the scriptures and the book with most allusions to the Old Testament of anything in the New Testament, and the whole story is right here. So this is really our summary. It's John's summary of the story, and it's our summary of John's summary of the story, which comes at the right time. Yeah, it is. It is the picture of a person whose imagination has been transformed by the story of God, read through the revelation of Christ. It's like John the theologian is also the target resting position of the mature disciple, the Mm. way they see reality, understand their own situation. And here at the end, we were in the last two chapters of Revelation, which depict the ending of the story of God, which is a return of the beginning of the story of God, which has been expected the whole time. We're going into Revelation 21 and 22, and then using that to wrap up this whole age, the end of this present age and the full arrival of the age to come. Take me into your notes. What's the first thing you're thinking of when it comes to the new heaven and the new earth? The first thing I'm thinking of is I have this picture of many threads all being knotted together in this one beautiful image. And the picture of the heavenly city descending and being united with the earthly city is the fulfillment of everything. It it makes me think about this entire conversation that we've had throughout the Mount Vigil podcast and the Story of God series, us talking about Eden as being a mountain garden and it being the place where heaven and earth met and where, where God dwelt with man. And it makes me think about people being temples and the greatest fulfillment of that being the church and our gathered embodied existence, us being the theos oikos, the the house of God, the place where the spirit comes and fills and us being the structure that God indwells. And 
it makes me think about the transfiguration as being this foretelling of the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. And ultimately, all the cosmos, the whole world becoming the temple of God. So this rift between heaven and earth being no more, and this beautiful union with this ellipsis at the end of that. (laughs) What comes next? An eternity of stewarding creation with God. And questions, we don't know. But this wonderful open-ended story where everything has come into alignment. And the thing that began with Jesus on the mysterious mountain where he was transfigured and he became that point where heaven meets earth and where the spiritual realm became visible or immediate in a way that it's not normally. That happening at the city level, at the level of the cosmos. So good. The last thing that happens is that Jesus returns and the Edenic vision that we glimpsed in two chapters at the very beginning of the Bible is realized. And there is so much here. We said before we started, we would not do line by line through two chapters, though it would be worth your time, listener, (laughs) to do that. Because get this, Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, pause. Let's go back to the biblical magi. When they roll into the story in Luke's gospel account, they fulfill a gigantic Old Testament prophecy. They fulfill something from Psalm 72, but primarily from Isaiah 60, which I should have pulled up, but I'm going to pull it up now. Isaiah 60 begins this way. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people's. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The big question in Isaiah 60, I was actually teaching on this recently, is that, is the who is the you? And Mm. if your Bible has section titles, then the title over Isaiah 60 is the glory of Zion. And then starting in verse 10 and 11, you get things like foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Here's verse 11. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night. Are these things coming back in Revelation? Yes, they are. But so the Magi roll in and they fulfill a prophecy that related to the dwelling place of God, which was Jerusalem, the city, which David named Zion. And they get there, and in this amazing plot twist, they're sent away. And they fulfill Isaiah's promise, but they don't. the kings of the earth don't lay down their riches in the new city. They bring them to the incarnate God, Jesus. Then the plot thickens because Jesus 
dwells by the Holy Spirit with his people who become the city of God on earth. We are the ones whose gates are open to the enemy nations of God who are repenting and bringing in their treasures. In Revelation, we have riffed back on back and forth on the 144,000 who are sometimes described as an army. Sometimes they are the city Jerusalem. Sometimes they are the bride. How do these things work? Is this, I don't know, as you would kind of like paint it, is, is this this giant city on a pedestal, like lowering to earth? Maybe, but I don't think that's the picture of the end of the story, the reality of the end of the story that we're given. I think it goes, here comes the new Jerusalem, the dwelling place with God, which is his people. Those who, are in, who have fallen asleep in the Lord are back. Those who are waiting are caught up in the air, and they are like a bride adorned for her husband, finally waiting for this bridal theology moment to be complete. We're the perfect covenant partnership. Look at me, Anthony. (laughs) You're the only one I have in this room to look at and say how much this moment matters. (laughs) Is, Is being restored. It's the Eden picture, the end of Genesis 2. Therefore, a man will leave his father's family and cleave to his wife, a thing that is happen- happened in the incarnation and in the crucifixion and at the resurrection and here at the final return. And so are there cities? Yes, of course there are. There is the restoration of all things. But most importantly, the long prophesied Jerusalem, which was going to be a city that had no walls whose gates were always open. Well, What do they do in Nehemiah? We've said this before, Ezra Nehemiah, they rebuild Jerusalem, they put a wall around it, and they hang new gates. Then they lock the gates to, you know, and people talk about this in a positive way because they lock the gates to preserve the Sabbath. They literally lock out the nations of the world, are locked outside. But here we said that in Isaiah 60, verse 11, it says, your gates will always stand open. They will never shut by day or by night. And and so we get to Revelation here, verse 24 and 25. By its light, the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Meaning... It's finally open to everyone. Jesus is back. And as it was in Genesis 2, at this moment, the story is really just beginning. You and I have talked about this at length. But the destiny of the universe is to be expanded, the government of God to be expanded into the cosmos through covenant partnership. Then we've had the entire issue of this present age. When we enter the age to come, when Jesus returns, that will be the beginning of the adventure that is the destiny for which the universe was made. That's a lovely summary. The part of the story that has been moving me so much recently, is realizing that everything you just described will happen, I believe, and will happen in a, in a um, ultimate way that we should all be looking forward to. 
And we should continue to pray the Maranatha and, and looking forward to that day. But also, we should see our, our shared life together as the church as being that whole event or meta-event as breaking into reality now. So the church on the earth now is the city of God, and her doors are always open for the nations to walk in. And the wedding feast we celebrate every time we gather at the table. I get to a point in, in imagining that future state where I get beyond my own capacity of imagination, my own powers to imagine what that's going to be like. And I, I just need to spend more time contemplating it. I can see it now. And increasingly, I have these moments where I'm with our people, whether it be at some gathering, like a church gathering or just over the table, kids playing in the backyard, whatever it is. And I have these moments where I can see it, where I can see it happening now. And I'm more and more convinced that our shared life together is a prophecy of that age to come. And it's also a present reality. It doesn't just point to something that's going to happen. It is the inbreaking of that now. Woof. That reminds me a story. That reminds me of a story is how English goes. <laughs> a friend of mine worked in a very rough neighborhood in Washington State. And one night, I actually happened to be visiting. You know, he's not at home. And like, we rolled in, and he was intervening in a suicide attempt. Hmm. And where this very tormented, with a very difficult story young person was done. And my friend was talking to this person and she says, I want to see God. And my friend responds, I can show you God right now, right now, which naturally elicited a certain curiosity. Mm. And the invitation was, come sit at my table with a few people who are following Jesus. And those of us who are far apart are brought near and are sharing the bread and the wine together. You can see it in real time. You can see a moment where it is on earth as it is in heaven. And where we are gathered, God is among us. You can come right now. And that tension that you're describing is the tension that defines our moment of already and not yet desiring the return of Jesus and being grateful for time for repentance. Another version is, you know, our friend here in town who works in the foster system, and we were having a conversation about the age to come and just saying of how the hope really is the resurrection and the return of Christ where everywhere God's will is done. The effective region of God's will is the entire cosmos. And yet, what you are doing when you are fathering children who are in the foster system is you are making it on earth the way it is in heaven. 
You're making it that way right now. Mm -hmm. There is an eternal reality where Jesus wipes away every tear, where he finally gathers as he wept over Jerusalem, his people, the dwelling place of God, I have longed to gather you as a mother hun gathers her chicks. That finally happens at the end of our story. And that can be imported into the present tense if we actually do make it the way it is in eternity when we express the will of God here, mm. now. You want to know another connect the dots <laughs> idea? Yeah. Did you know... How many times Yahweh says, I will tell them my name in the book of Exodus? I'm going to guess seven. Seven. And because you are a student of the scriptures, do you just want to tell our listeners why that matters? <laughs> well, because it is, it's a perfection of him expressing himself to them and revealing himself to them. Yes, what God himself, the triune God is signaling is that the events of the Exodus are a complete revelation of God's identity and his identity is seen through the way that he orders the universe. And what is God's identity? Well, he throws down the dark spiritual powers. He opposes empire. He frees slaves. He makes an offer that is open to everyone. He provides food for the journey. He gives water to all who are thirsty. He forgives. He is slow to anger. You get, boom, Exodus, who is God? Look, this is who he is. Where, where is the world his way? Not very many places, actually. Smaller and smaller over the Old Testament narrative, wider and wider since the work of the church after the ascension. But the picture of that you get in Exodus neatly mirrors. The, I mean, the very plagues get referenced in Revelation, the picture in Revelation where God's will, the way he orders the universe, is done everywhere. Babylon the Great, all empires finally fall. Many of the kings of the earth are brought not to hard-heartedness, but to repentance, because that is God's will. The slaves are fed. Every promise that is made to the seven churches at the beginning is fulfilled when the story reaches its climax. And John brilliantly ties the threads together where in Revelation 2, it's church in Ephesus, I will give to you the right to eat of the tree of life, which was there in the garden in the beginning, which we could say a lot about, but it's there at the end. And in Revelation 21, they're eating of the tree of life. And then it goes on. You will not taste of the second death. And then it says, death is no more. It has been wiped away forever. And finally, the, the national redemption project that was begun in Exodus is completed one day. This age will not, this wrestle between this present age and the age to come, will not go on forever. So, Ant-Man, we have spent months contemplating Revelation, studying Revelation in particular, but we've spent at least the last year in this context and in other contexts 
marinating in the story of God. And I'm wondering what that is doing for you. What is, where does your mind go with some of the fruit ban of soaking in this story? The more I've anticipated this conversation, this wrap-up of the Revelation, uh, we've had to reschedule several times for various reasons. And the longer that it's taken to get to this recording, the more time I've had to ask myself this question over and over, which is, how is my life conforming to the story? And how am I living out the way of the new city, the way of Zion, the way of the city of God, in the context of Babylon. And honestly, where are the places in my life that are still where Babylon is creeping in, where the mark of the beast is still materializing? (laughs) And man, I've spent several weeks in this deep state of conviction. I think for a while it was not healthy conviction, but more the sense of guilt and inadequacy. And it's it's been a whole head trip just thinking about this question. What does the revelation mean in my life and how does it show up? At some point, I realized that I was struggling with it in a loop. And so I stepped out of that loop of trying to understand my own story with my own powers of comprehension and of discernment and so on. And just asking God, what do you see? (laughs) You tell me. All I can see is the bad or the good not being good enough. And it's been really pleasant to get outside of my own judgment and to let the Father speak to me about this question. A lot has come up. There is a lot of legitimate conviction, and there's a lot to celebrate. I'll just start with one of the lessons that's come up for me as we've studied this text. We started this conversation on the Revelation with this thought that modern life, just life in Babylon, is itself a or the Great Tribulation. It's really easy to read the Revelation and and you hear about the martyrs and about those who were beheaded, and you imagine Christians in um, a Roman context undergoing acute persecution. It's really easy to disassociate oneself from all of that. And as as we said before, it's important to see the martyrs as the martyrs. They they do hold an honored place, And, and in the text, they're basically the star witnesses. But it's very important for us to realize that we are called to be the martyrs, whether it's by means of actually staying faithful unto our death, our actual death, or whether it's by means of daily taking up our cross and walking in the way. It's given me compassion for our people, for myself, for my family, to, to recognize life in Babylon as being a form of suffering and being strenuous and difficult. And it gives me hope. It it points me, as we've said, all the suffering, all of these judgments throughout the Revelation are for a good purpose. They're actually love, and and they're to give us the prompt to repent and to turn to Christ. I'm seeing that in my own life. So much of what this study has done for me has simply brought me to my knees. I'm in the process of a ton of repentance. Man, sometimes I'm like, how much repentance can I do? before there's a season where there's not a lot to do right now and and there's something else to do (laughs) because I feel like I've been repenting for years now. And some of that's just my own, you know, again, fleshly sense of guilt. But a lot of it is really good and true and I think spirit-led. Reading the Revelation 
I think the primary response that one should have is repentance. And when you see the life that we're living as, as being in the context of a great tribulation and of persecution, even if you're not having your right to express your, your religion impeded, but you live in a, a culture that is so aggressively destructive that everywhere you turn, you experience this ambient, low-grade, consistent trauma. It's a reality. So what, what does the Christian do who lives in that context? Which is just, what does the Christian do? And it's turn to God and so many things. Pray the prayer of the Holy Spirit, restore my soul. Sing the songs of the Revelation and take the bread and wine at the table and be edified by the people that you're living with. Sing the new song of the victory of the Lamb. I could go on. It's so good. I'll answer that question, and then I have another question for you. One of the things that has happened in particular in marinating in Revelation and looking at the saints who washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb and knowing that it's that by making like Jesus and laying down their lives that they triumph over the world and establish the kingdom. It makes a person think of suffering. And I've always been someone who is like, sure that I can handle any suffering, but the suffering that I'm being given. (laughs) (laughs) And I've told my wife at several points over, man, almost a decade now of being married that I'm aware that I think the worst pain is whatever pain that I'm in. (laughs) And, And so one thing that has happened for me as I've been reading Revelation has been looking to honestly evaluate where is the pain right now? Start there and then see, try to see how it works in the story of God. And so one thing is for going on three years now, One of my central desires is to not be depressed anymore Hmm. at all. And we were sitting around recently with some friends asking questions like, what are your long-term prayers? And what, what are some of your biggest unanswered prayers? That was a really amazing question actually to personally consider and then in kind of like a a close ring of fellow disciples answer that question. But again, I really hadn't read feeling depressed and not being able to technique my way into the emotional states Mm. that I want. I hadn't read it as having anything to do with following Jesus because there's not a direct correlation between like, oh, you're following Jesus. Well, right now the government's giving you a drug that makes you depressed. (laughs) Or it didn't feel the same as the suffering of the martyrs. Like all it is, is I wake up in the morning with a sense of blankness. Mm. Or I try to remember sometimes how it felt to have like a really hopeful vision of the future. Fortunately, not all the time, but it's a deep enough theme for years now that it's been like, wow, what do I do with this? And 
it's been actually quite transformative to insist on interpreting that suffering, which feels so Western middle class, Mm -hmm. to interpret it through the picture of the revelation. And to say, well, actually, if I start consenting and going like, okay, this is actually suffering that I'm making an offering of to Jesus, for one thing. It's also something that I am accepting as the transformation of my character. One thing that it has exposed, you know, I might have said this, but there's a great saying that technique is modern superstition. And it is because it's about controlling outcomes. A skill is about altering an environment to make a certain outcome likely. Too often the technique is about being like, oh, oh, you don't feel happy enough? Well, get up first thing in the morning and take five big breaths and write down like five things you're thankful for. And I'm telling you, I, I have done every technique from the research to mm. alter my brain chemistry. And it has exposed my insistence on feeling a certain way before just loving Jesus and like obeying Jesus. It's exposed how committed I am. The, oh, what's his name? It's going to come to me as I say this, but there is a monk whose name starts with a B, Bernard of Clairvaux, who talks about the stages of discipleship. And he says like, you know, the first one is love of God for self. Actually, love of self for self and love of God for self, I think is the order. He's like, we think we love God, but what we really love is the feelings we get from God. And to, be, to not have the feelings that I want for a long time has really shown, whoa, I really want feelings. And then, man, it's kind of layered deeper and has just shown no matter how much I say otherwise, I really do so much blame shifting onto people and circumstances for the choices that were just for the way that I feel and the way that I feel for what I do with my time. And this morning I was going in, I was driving in, I was listening to Daily Audio Bible. Shout out to Brian Harden. Also, shout out to Tony and Lana. And it was, it was two sevens. It was Ecclesiastes 7 and it was 2 Corinthians 7. And Ecclesiastes 7 is, you know, better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. And 2 Corinthians 7 is... Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And the fascinating thing about those things being online as they, as it came in, was like, oh, part of receiving suffering in a, in a way that establishes the reign of God is letting it bring the fruit of repentance over time. It's you know, suffering is bottomlessly complex because the sufferings of Christ represent his marriage covenant with humanity and who can plumb the bottom of that. But one dimension that I've experienced in Revelation is insisting on naming my pain and then trying on the different lenses to how would this look read through the lens of Revelation. So the person in my life that I think exemplifies this well is my wife. 
for years now, she's gotten migraines. She gets migraines that last for three days at a time and pretty awful, just stuck in bed. She literally has one as we are recording right now. That has given rise to a lot of occasion to consider the meaning and redemptive possibilities of suffering. One of the anchor texts for us in thinking about a theology of suffering is First uh, Peter. There's several passages I could pull, but here's one. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For, for what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. The next chapter has much more on the subject. Peter has been a guide in this invitation, not just to see specifically the suffering of someone saying, hey, you're a Christian, so I'm going to beat you or put you in prison, but just all suffering, any suffering, and this is all over Paul as well, as an occasion to offer it as a sacrifice to God and to actually just be present with God in it and to receive whatever transformation is there. And My wife has told her story really beautifully because she has three days at a time in very intense suffering just to lay there in bed, basically. Witnessing her travails there, sometimes it's just empty and a little bit devastating, but increasingly, it seems to be the place where she experiences some very profound fathering from God. I wish it was some other way, but suffering is perhaps the key place in the human experience that we are invited to receive the life of God and to experience profound transformation, his immediate presence in ways that often go well beyond words where we're simply just there, there with him. The revelation has made me think about suffering a lot. Hasn't it? When Jesus, I love that when Jesus teaches about following him and suffering in particular, he gives a construction and a military metaphor. It's the who builds the tower or who declares war on a nation without first strategically considering, do I have the troops available to win this? And, or who builds a tower without checking the money in the bank account and sitting down? And I think that the instruction there is an invitation from God first to give concrete language to the cost. And so, because we can't do very much actually with our suffering until we name it hmm. and base and assign it a value and then begin to look at these lenses. Like, so there's the invitation from Jesus to go make like the good builder go, well, if I keep going this way, Jesus. Like, I'm following you, and look at what's happening to me. The response from Jesus would be, what is happening to you? Tell me. Be particular. And then 
begin to mull over, you know, what does this look like is something that flushes your map for happiness. And what might it look like to compare that with happiness as described by Jesus? Mm. Or what does it look like to make like Jesus and enter into this space and go ahead and grapple for a long time? Like bring your whole heart to God. You recently said in a newsletter that you wrote that you actually prefer the angry young man because he has some life drive to point in some direction. And C.S. Lewis says something related in The Great Divorce where people who are who come up to heaven in that story and rail at heaven are actually a great deal closer to repentance than those who are just mute. Mm. Make like Gethsemane. I had an experience recently where someone was talking about when, when you move from why God to where God. And I thought, man, when you move from asking why God to asking where are you moving God, I haven't even moved into asking why God. So I got on a bike and I started climbing a big hill, which is a great way to kind of get into a painful state. And I just began by naming what I didn't get about my season right now. And it was an amazing beginning of, I'm like, listen, I kind of know enough about how psychology works to know my plan isn't really isn't to vent and do nothing. My plan is to point this in your direction and start opening what's happening under the surface to you, God, on purpose as a discipline and giving it some language. Why did it go this way? This is not how I thought the story would go. And then that positions me and you, if you receive the invitation to go a layer deeper and ask one of the next questions like, is this actually an offering? And is this learning how to love God in your suffering? I've mentioned, I'm just going to keep going. I've mentioned The Patient Ferment of the Early Church before. Great book. And that PhD attributes the growth of the early church to how deliberately they shaped the reflexive bodily behavior of people. They're just really intense about transforming the way that they lived. And one of the things that they would do is they acknowledged it's really hard to love God when you're in pain without practice. So they really intentionally prepared people to love God while suffering. And one of the ways they do that is they say, okay, we're going to fast and then go into the woods and practice contemplation. And it's very hard to ignore the mild but still acute pain of hunger and like respond to it with stillness and then turn your affection to God. I'll be the first to say, I have a hard time doing that to this day. And yet it's part of the building block of learning to in suffering, love Jesus, to in suffering, make an offering of pain, understanding that it establishes the reign of God. It is a real part of the coming of heaven to earth, present everywhere in the biblical story, but so all capital letters, all red letters across the book of Revelation is through suffering, the kingdom comes. Hmm. Years ago, I read a book called The Fighter's Mind, and it's a fantastic book that is one man's attempt to understand the psychology of fighters, like UFC or whatever, and he himself was one. One of the key concepts in the book was this word gameness, and he, and he said that people that fight dogs 
which is a terrible thing to do. The ones that are great fighters have this quality that the, the breeders call gameness, and they're just ready to rumble, ready to go. And some of what you're describing, this is only one aspect of it. And it's really not a call to approach suffering in some macho way, which if you're in the middle of suffering is kind of a joke anyways. But there's this quality of gameness of in suffering, almost some version of the father being like, let's wrestle and being willing to wrestle with God in the midst of, of suffering produces fruit. It's really hard and it needs to go in a certain direction into the heart of the father. But a lot of what you're saying here is just suffering is discipleship. Uh, I was recently rewatching the old Numa video in OOMA, which is a play on Pneuma spirit breath by Rob Bell. So way back in the day, Rob Bell, long before he I remember these videos. Yeah, these videos are gorgeous, man. Long before he was canceled in a very unloving way by the church, long before he was what I would describe as apostate, he did these beautiful poetic videos, which you can find on YouTube still. They're not available anywhere, but in ripped versions. There was one called Dust. And he actually got this core concept for this video from one of my all-time heroes, Ray Vanderlaan, who was a teacher of his. The whole thesis of Dust is that there was a saying in ancient rabbinic Judaism, which was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the idea was a good disciple would walk behind their rabbi and try to do everything that they did. And the joke was that the disciples, perhaps who had the most gameness, would even try to follow the rabbi into the bathroom. And he'd have to be like, okay, guys, I know you're being good disciples here, but just stay out there so I can do my business. And so the idea is just do everything that your rabbi does. The thing that Peter, again, in First Peter describes is this idea that we get to be close to Jesus in our sufferings. Jesus lived a life of sufferings. He was a man of sorrows. Lots of other things as well. This isn't the only part, the only, <laughs> thank God, all there is to say about the way. It's just fundamental and core. So we must see the sufferings of this present age as an invitation to be like Jesus, to walk right behind him in the life that he lived and to be very close to him. Yeah, St. John of the Cross has, a wonder, has some wonderful work on this as he talks about the seri seriousness of discipleship too. And, and it's a point that actually does bear naming. And San Juan de la Cruz said, you okay, listen, yeah. Um, listen, start doing Jesus stuff. Try to embody not just the action, but the motivations of Christ. Try to listen rather than to talk. Try to serve rather than to be served and expect the cross to find you. It's kind of his big instructions. And then he has this riff where he says, you kind of need to be honest and see, is following Jesus costing you what the world has on offer? Because it will. And if it's not costing anything, you know, if it's like I can see how people under living under Roman rule had to not sleep with temple prostitutes, but fortunately I live in a Christian nation, so following Jesus doesn't cost me, you know, the benefits of living in an empire. The great contemplatives would have nothing to do with this answer. They'd be like, I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. But it can be a wonderful point of evaluation 
not in a critical, but in that same Jesus, bring your light of judgment way to go. Is following Jesus creating friction between me and the ease of the world? It, it kind of should be. And if it's not at all, which very often I am in the, well, I kind of like to bob along camp. It's a great opportunity to ask Jesus, what are you paying attention to that I should also be paying attention to? I want to move beyond the suffering conversation, but my last thought here, one of the things that has been helpful to me in doing a deep dive of the commentaries and the exegesis word for word of this book has been a reframing of Revelation 6, 9 through 11, where it talks about when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And I realized that prior to the study, I had a negative reaction to that verse. It wasn't conscious, but I always disliked that verse because I saw it only as all of the saints who had suffered so much being like dirt under the foundation of this throne and under the altar, which is in the throne room. After studying this verse, I realized it's a beautiful picture, actually. It's a picture of God covering those people and giving them shelter. This is just connecting one of the images of the revelation to this concept of suffering, that we can see ourselves as hidden under the throne of God and him as covering us and defending us and rescuing us. That's so good. My last concept from Revelation is a little riff on the beautiful pastoral job that John does, helping people through the disconnect between how it looks and how it feels, between the how and the why. And almost certainly, as somewhere in your teens, I'm just, I know, audience, that you had this experience somewhere of like reading an amazing book or watching an amazing video or seeing a great play and deciding to make one book, video, play, and discovering that the experience of like making, a short film doesn't feel anything like the experience of watching a short film. And what's the deal? Um, this is actually a really profound and important human lesson, which is like the, the desirable vision of the future is vital. The, the sweeping drama of salvation history that we've been talking about is an epic story. And most of us think that it will feel epic to live in. Or that something in our daily life is going to have to change categorically for us to really be living in the story of God and that the experience of the mystics is some other thing where they got the super juice that lets them see saints and angels and they have another quality of existence. This is not how it works. And John is trying to get your attention and say, Look at the world. It is a place of trampling beasts and angelic armies and, you know, the victorious armies chanting in unison together and angels flying back and forth over the world, calling in a loud voice gospels of Jesus. It's amazing. It's epic. And then he tells you how it's going to feel over and over. 
And he goes, it's going to feel like your good deeds and your good works and resisting false teaching and all of these things, but don't forget the story you're in. Mm. And if you read the early teachers, I'm thinking like St. Benedict here, on learning the how, which is the way, um, on discipleship, they're really kind to say, it feels weird at first, but not forever. And in his introduction to his rule, recorded, of, of course, quite a while after he died, but Benedict, this line was remembered that ben would, Benedict would say, Ben, <laughs> um, which is, the way may be narrow at first, but in time we will run. And I was, I've been thinking about this, looking at Revelation, and I was thinking about this when just recently the Caldwells, these missionaries, were in town talking about the move of God in Dar Islam and the House of Islam and this unbelievable thing that's going on. And as always, when anyone who's like seeing Jesus do his thing starts talking, like, I just start to feel deeply disturbed in my, like, I want to be a part of it. And I also feel annoyed. And I'm also <laughs> like, Jesus, what are you asking for? Basically, like, what do I have to do to be a part of that? And why am I not a part of that right now? I felt the same way at that talk. I, it was such a head trip for me. Oh my gosh. And, or, you know, I felt this way when I talked to JT Thomas about setting up a baptismal font where George Floyd was killed and the Holy Spirit falling on this altar of pain and people just start getting freaking baptized and they're praising God. And it's like, what, what can, can I come with you? How do I do, how do I be a part of this? And as I was sitting there hearing these unbelievable stories, all of that little thing happened where I'm like, oh my gosh, Holy Spirit, you're so annoying right now. <laughs> um, which is like, well, I kind of know, I kind of know, which is to slowly start doing the Jesus stuff, to slowly start exchanging the life of a late modern American for a life of a disciple of Jesus. And interestingly enough, I had been having like an ongoing conversation with someone on, it's very easy for me to make excuses for like not being involved in, in the really basic Jesus stuff ever, like not being involved in clothing people who need clothes ever, not being involved in feeding people who are hungry ever. And we were like, okay, listen, here's an organization in our city. It's good enough. And once, and they have needs all the time. Once a month, we are just going to start going because it's, it's what obedience to Christ looks like. And I'm expecting that in time I will run. Or some other ones of, at the beginning of this year, and they sound so basic, but at the beginning of this year, I'm like, Emily, our whole goal is for you and I to pray together daily. This is our new goal and apprenticeship to Jesus because look at Revelation and how it's constant prayer and like intercession finally gets poured out in this iridescent wave over the world. And then it became, we really need to be doing household prayer with our family and then with our roommate who lives downstairs. So we've been using the family prayer from the daily office of the Anglican Church, which is wonderfully short enough and easy for kids to follow. We do it right at the end of breakfast. And it's just been like, 
I watch this movie of God, and then I go, man, what the heck? And then all of a sudden, the little areas of just basically ignoring, really ignoring uh, the basics of the life of the disciple start coming online with like, go this way, do these things. The churches in the beginning of Revelation are all evaluated in terms of their works and deeds, what they are doing with their time and how that is bringing them into friction with empire. And I went, dang it. (laughs) Um, Oh, again, it's like, I'll take any suffering, but the suffering that I actually have, which is like, I will, I will do anything, Jesus, except the one thing that is required to be a part of a move of God. It's like, and the one thing is showing up to the Jesus activities, like getting up early enough in the morning to have a few minutes of sitting in the silence of God and over and over and over. And, and then eventually, as is happening with me right now, in particular in the areas of like prayer and justice, I've just been experiencing some really wonderful conviction around the poverty of my prayer life by hearing people who have beautiful lives of prayer narrate theirs. And I'm like, wait, I'm sorry. You pray how much on the way to work for every household in our church by name and you love it? Like, (laughs) I'm sorry. They like said it so casually. I like found them later. I'm like, can you tell me what you do Um, when you are in the car? And it was like, okay, okay, Holy Spirit, I do see where you are bringing um, conviction just to the need for loving obedience to Jesus and out of a desire to live in the epic reality depicted in Revelation to slowly but surely change the minutia of my life to look more like the person who believes that story is true. So good. The last big category for me, it's a bit of a segue here. You're talking about the discontinuity between what it feels like day in, day out, and the picture that we've been given. I think one of the the points of John's apocalypse, of that letter being given to the church, is that we are to rehearse it and to have our imaginations reshaped to see the substance of our lives and the travails of our lives in these cosmic terms. In uh, several times throughout the, the course of this Story of God series, we've said, we interpret this particular passage, whatever it is, incorrectly often because we fail to see the cosmic nature of what we are doing together in the church. Maybe the biggest thing that I've, been, I've taken away from the revelation is this idea of the new song. Perhaps our chief political expression as a a different people, a different nation, a new ethnos, a city, is in worship, is in song, is in creating beautiful things, in making art. And the more I thought about sharing this idea, the more I felt somewhat self-conscious. It's kind of a hippie-ish response to like, well, what do we do about the revelation? And it's like, write poetry. But I think it's a true and wise and very important thing to understand. So in in looking for other voices on this, I I went to Makoto Fujimura, who's maybe one of our most thoughtful people alive now who does this. So in his letter to a young artist, he wrote, 
St. Paul wrote, Creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The whole realm of nature waits for our arrival onto the stage of life. God frustrates creation so that the very groaning of life produces expression by children of God. In the theater of life, we see in the darkness and suffering all around us a world that beckons for our arrival. Our creative endeavors are mandated to begin with that understanding of suffering and darkness. Art helps us to confront darkness head on. For that reason, you must not cease to create, even in the, even in the darkest of hours. By creating, you can participate in announcing that great arrival. You can also help your community to articulate their suffering with a deeper call for a community. So how do we wage a war against death? One of the answers is we sing the new song. We sing it to each other. We worship. We make paintings. We make poetry. We plant gardens. We, we make a beautiful table to feast together at. I was thinking about what artists do this well? Uh, and Bob Dylan, he's a person whose songwriting is political in a prophetic way. He's got too many songs to, to choose from. But the place I went was Wendell Berry. And I'm just going to read a poem of his. It's called Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. And to me, this is one of the, the best examples of how a, a poem can, can awaken your consciousness to the possibility of a new politic, a new political project. There's one line in this poem that I would actually change. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to you to guess which one it is, but here goes. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay, want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So, friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that, that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields, lie easy in the shade, rest your head in her lap, swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary. Summon the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. I don't want to overstate or understate this point. <laughs> Christians are called to pursue the true, the good, and the beautiful. 
and through their creativity in the world, leave signposts all over in, in their wake that point people to the divine. So good. Total left turn here. Um, before we end, at the beginning of our first conversation, conversation on the revelation, you and I came together and we both had stumbled upon some of the same books independently, like Revelation for the Rest of Us. And both of us said that more than any other thing we've studied so far for this Story of God series, that we've just pulled together a ton of resources. And we both felt the desire to share a lot of those with you, the audience. So Blaine, what are your top five resources that you would point people to if they want to go deeper on the Revelation? Well, you can't skip a Bible project video. It's so good. The Revelation overview video, parts one and two. Um, although it's an expensive book, reading Revelation responsibly is so good. Though it's scholarly, Richard Balcom, The Climax of Prophecy, that book did something for me. He talked about Scott McKnight. His book is very good. But trying to drill down on the less is more in terms of resources around Revelation, like, you know, my boy Tremper Longman III has basically an encyclopedia called Revelation Through Old Testament Eyes that goes symbol to symbol. And, you know, I think it's kind of interesting reading, <laughs> um, but largely would say, man, that's difficult. So I'll circle back. My, like, if you really want to understand Revelation, I think that the book that is better uh, than the rest of them is reading Revelation responsibly. But I also, you've seen this podcast that to understand Revelation, you have to have an imagination that is thoroughly shaped by the biblical story. So my kind of like pivot <laughs> into, you know, what's like, what are some of the absolute best resources on the entire story of the Bible? Mm. Um, our boy Stephen DeYoung, his book, Religion of the Apostles, is one. If you read Tom Wright's Simply Christian and Simply Jesus back-to-back, or actually how God became king first and then those other ones, those are very good uh, introductions to kind of the entire picture of reality. I think doing something like that, again from Tremper Longman, he has a book just called An Introduction to the Old Testament, uh, so helpful in terms of if you want to understand Revelation, you have to understand the whole Bible. There are not really shortcuts. I wish that there were 12 books that were like, this is an awesome introduction. In fact, actually, Anthony and I have some of one written that's an introduction to the whole Bible. I have a book coming out shortly that's an introduction to the whole Bible, uh, self-promotion here. There are not as many as there should be that kind of like thoroughly f cover Old Testament themes. Mm. But if you pick up one of the ones named, even pick up Heiser's Unseen Realm or Supernatural if you haven't read that yet, and you will kind of be well positioned to see how all of these things come together in the Revelation. That's good. How would you answer that question? I'll start with one that was not on my list until you pivoted to the, the bigger picture. For the bigger picture, I think John Mark Comer's Live No Lies is a truly excellent book. 
that helps you orient yourself in the story. And his subtitle, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies That Sabotage Your Peace, is the kind of subtitle that a publisher would want you to put on your book to sell more of them. And it's kind of terrible, in my opinion. But the book is really deep. Pause, sorry. If it's after January also, the book that is going to be the best book on discipleship will be out, which is also Comer and it's Practicing the Way. Mm, and yeah, oh yeah. It's going to be so good. I found Dr. Heiser, Dr. Michael Heiser, may he rest in peace, his podcast commentary on the revelation to be fantastic. I would call it a selective commentary. So he just chapter by chapter or section by section zeroes in on something that given his way of doing exegesis and his um, interests in scholarship and so on, he just, he, he will, uh, the, if you like the kind of discussion that we did on, on these few episodes, he does that for the whole text. Uh, Bible Project, of course, was way up on my list. There's not really a better distilled summary of the text that will help you try to get the structure of it in your head and the, the movements and the, the feel. G.K. Beale is probably the greatest common of Revelation, in my opinion. Uh, he's a heavy hitter. There's a, a, more, a more popular version called Revelation, a shorter commentary, and then he has his full commentary, the book of Revelation. And he also wrote the use of Daniel in Jewish apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature and in the Revelation of St. John. That's super academic. And then The Battle for the Keys by Justin Bass, subtitle Revelation 118 and Christ's Descent into the Underworld. That one is more hyper-focused on one part of the revelation, and that one's super interesting. You can find, I think, a free PDF of it online if you dig around. And then several resources came up for me in a separate category, which are if someone catches the vision of, of John's apocalypse and realizes that we live embedded in Babylon in this other world, this other nation, this other way that is permeating in its larger context, what are some resources that would help people? John Mark Comer's book is, is in that category. A few other ones. Letters to the Exiles is probably, it might be one of the most underrated resources out there ever because it's so beautiful. It's hilarious. It's, it's a video series. It's really creative. And almost no one's heard of it. It was created by the Acton Institute, which is the super crusty, like, I think kind of right-wingish, economics-focused Christian nonprofit. And somehow that organization, and I, I, I'm not like harshing on them, I guess, a little bit, but somehow that organization ended up producing this series, which is super hipster and just funky and very creative, called Letters to the Exiles. That video series I can't recommend it enough. It totally reshaped my view of the world. One of my mantras in life now is all is gift. And thinking about Paul saying things like live in the gift economy in the oikonomia of Karis. Anyways, if you want a video series that's like five to eight long that engages with lots of creative voices who are in, in their own streams of life living the way, the alternative way, it's fun. Kids can watch it. You can watch it with a group. Makoto Fujimura is actually a guest on that series. I've met the guys who made it, and they're super cool. Walter Brueggemann, earlier you mentioned Exodus as being this sort of microcosm within the larger 
story, right? Walter Brueggemann is the man who is most obsessed with that, hands down. I'm, I'm not sure if anyone alive is, or dead has ever been more like Exodus is, 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 is my lens for reality. So many of his writings. But two books that were recommended to me by my friend Justin Sharp. One of them is Sabbath as Resistance by Brueggemann. And it, it partakes just the idea of Sabbath and positions it as the way of resistance in Babylon. And it has chapters like resistance to anxiety, to coercion, to exclusivism, to multitasking. Sabbath is one of the ways that we can live resistant to Babylon. And then one of the all-time classic texts from, I want to say the 60s, maybe the 70s, I don't know, Resident Aliens by Stanley Hauerwas and uh, a guy named Willeman is a wonderful text. It, it, it's, it's a blast from the past. But it, it, regardless of what you think about any given point they make, it'll totally challenge you to want to explore how do we live in the church, in the kingdom, and understanding it as its own political way, its own economic way, its own way comprehensively. The other one that this guy, Justin, recommended to me that I found to be quite encouraging was Making All Things New by Henry Nouwen, which is a very gentle, beautiful call to discipleship in a world that is cruel and harsh and draining. The last one is by a person that I actually am not a big fan of on so many levels. Nonetheless, he's a very prophetic voice that challenges me. And the book Jesus for President, it's got some severe weaknesses. So up to you, person that reads it, to do your own discernment. But man, I've yet to find a better challenge to the church that has accommodated the ways of Babylon and and failed to differentiate itself from Babylon. I've yet to find a more winsome challenge and not just a challenge to like a critique, but also a call to the way. And that's my big list of resources. That's a good list, man. I'm so glad that you're going to do the show notes for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Following Anthony's prompt, <laughs> we're going to end our series on Revelation and our series on the story of God with some of the hymns from Revelation. There's really no better place to land a conversation on the Revelation. If I could sing, I would sing these, just so you know. Uh, but since I can't... Go for it, man. Just do it. Here you have them <laughs> spoken. Revelation 19. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. In verse 4, And the twenty-four elders and the four animals fell down and made obeisance to the God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came forth from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all his slaves, and those who revere him, the small and the great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I'll just continue. 
And he tells me, right, how blissful those called to the supper for the marriage of the Lamb. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords.